You're listening to The Road to Philanthropy with Gary Cohn, a podcast series on giving and working with nonprofits. This podcast is produced by Painted Rock Advisors, a consulting hub providing services to the philanthropic and nonprofit communities. We bring together your values and wealth with opportunities to do good work and make the world a better place. What can we do to help you? Contact us at paintedrockadvisors at gmail.com. Hi, this is Gary Cohn. Welcome to The Road to Philanthropy, a podcast series on everything in the nonprofit, philanthropic, and business worlds. Today, our guest is Barry Feinstone, the CEO of the Jim Joseph Foundation, a $1.5 billion foundation primarily funding Jewish education nationwide and headquartered in the San Francisco Bay Area. Barry Feinstone was raised in Glasgow, Scotland, and went to Jordan Hill College. He moved to New York in his early 20s and worked in the Jewish camping world before moving on to Ohio, where he was an executive director of a synagogue in the Cincinnati area. Leaving Ohio for California, Barry ended up at the JCC of San Francisco as the executive director and CEO, where he had a very successful tenure. He left there to join the John and Lisa Pritzker Foundation and then moved on to the Jim Joseph Foundation. I've known Barry since he was a temple administrator back in Cincinnati. I knew back then he was a superstar, and certainly as the head of the Jim Joseph Foundation, he's proven my prediction true. Welcome, Barry. Great to be here, Gary. Good to be with you again. I know we've, we've known each other for a lot of years, and I want to start off first with the foundation you're currently with, and then we'll go backwards a little bit uh, off and on about that and talk about leadership and nonprofits in general. Tell us a little bit about the foundation you currently are CEO of. So I am privileged and honored to be the president and CEO of the Jim Joseph Foundation. Jim Joseph of blessed memory passed away in 2003 at the, at the young age of 68. And he had, you know, built and amassed a good deal of wealth via his real estate company. And on his paths, uh, on his passing foundation was uh, created in his memory per his estate for the purpose of Jewish education for young North American Jews. So the focus of the foundation is fully on Jewish education. The Jim did not, he, he stated it was for young North American Jews. He did not define what young meant and he did not define what education meant. I'd like to think that was on purpose um, as he recognized that the world of Jewish life was one that was constantly evolving. You know, Jim himself, uh, while I never had the good fortune of uh, of meeting him, um, I've had the privilege and pleasure of getting to know two of his children and other people that did. You know, it was just a, a classic, uh, a classic American success story. His family left Austria in August of 1939 and made their way to the fair city where you reside, Gary, to Los Angeles, and uh, you know worked themselves up. Jim went to Wharton as a young man and became at an early age, a pretty uh, interested and prolific uh, real estate investor. And now the uh, that that wealth that he has amassed is now being put to good use at the, at the foundation. The foundation has assets currently of uh, a little bit shy of about $1.5 billion. Um, we don't do capital gifts, we don't do endowment gifts. So we are directly focused on the uh, arenas of Jewish education. I had this morning, I had a, a breakfast meeting with Noah Farkas, who is now the head of the Jewish Federation of Los Angeles. 
and he talked about the Jewish study they just did, the first one in many years, and the direction about about Jewishness. And he talked a lot about doing Jewish. And I thought, well, you must have read Zach Bodner's book on doing Jewish. But you guys also have a, a, a very interesting view of programmatic expansion and, and creativity. How do you work on that as a, as a foundation? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I think um, like, like I, you know, like, um, like any job, it takes an awful lot of hard work and good thought to do it well. And I, I think an awful lot of people um, think of the foundation world and they say, wow, what a great job. I, you know, how great it must be to give away money. And, and the answer, of course, is it is. It, it's a wonderful privileged position. Um, and I just want to say straight out, having spent most of my career on the other side of the table asking for money, that's where the real hard work gets done. Um, but the foundation world, just like anything else, you know, in order to do it well, you have to be you have to it's hard work and you have to be thoughtful. So the foundation has a has a plan, has a design strategy around our giving. Um, and we we view doing Jewish as quite expansive. And we view it both in the formal education world and, and also very much in the informal education world. And our strategy really is really focused on three main areas. One area is one strategic priority is what we call powerful Jewish learning experiences. And that's the arena where the end user themselves is a young person. So think about our grants to Hillel, our grants to Moshe House, our grants to BBYO, our grants to the Jewish camping world, um, et cetera. The second area is what we term as exceptional Jewish leaders and educators. And by Jewish leaders, we mean, we mean professionals up and through the ranks, CEOs all the way to early career. We view lay people in that regard and, and Jewish educators. And that priority is really based on the fact that on the notion that if the powerful Jewish learning experience is to be a good one, the quality of the people delivering it has to be good. So if the health of your body is somehow related to the skill of your doctor, the health of the Jewish community is directly correlated to those that work in it, and we need to invest in them. And then our third priority, um, which is a relatively new one, is what we call R&D for the future of Jewish learning, which is the foundation's attempt to begin to look around corners and uh, and instead of reacting to the problems of Jewish life, is somehow beginning to look at trends and forecast where we're going to go. And then the other thing I just say at this point, one of the things that makes us a little bit more unique is that when we find the right partners to do our work, we are um, we we more often than not like to give general operating support as opposed to direct program support for a particular piece of the work. There are places where we do do programmatic support, but once we find a partner that that we're really in relationship with, uh, we have a trusting you know grant making relationship. We like to you know give general operating. And then one final comment, just as a, as a precursor to how we work, we're a national foundation. So while we are based in San Francisco, and we do have a little bit of a special tie here, of course, and um, we're a national funder, and therefore we look for national umbrellas to, to, to deposit a lot of our funds so that they can, you know, one example would be there are 160 or 70 Jewish summer camps around the country. 
it would be virtually impossible for us to know that camp A needs this and camp B needs that and camp C needs that. We'd need a, we'd need a staff of dozens to figure that out. So we give our money to the foundation of, of Jewish camping and you know they have a strategic plan that we have bought into, and then we we allow them to disperse the funds in a manner that helps the field. So we're very much work trying to work at the systems level. And now a moment for one of our sponsors. Jorgensen HR believes that the employer's workforce is the single key to customer satisfaction, reputation, growth, profitability, and the ultimate success of the company. Jorgensen works to ensure that employees are engaged, well-trained, and led by owners and management that are passionate about the success of their company and its employees. Jorgensen HR provides outsourced HR on an interim or permanent basis. They provide an audit of the company's HR policies, including work plans, procedures, and compliance with labor laws. They provide affirmative action audits for companies that are required by law to have an annual report. They handle workplace investigations for harassment and discrimination among their HR solutions. Jorgensen HR. Results-oriented, driven by passion, guided by expertise. Jorgensen can be reached at jorgensenhr.com, J-O-R-G-E-N-S-E-N-H-R.com. Well, two things you said that are kind of interesting. One, uh, about operational support. I had a meeting recently with the Weingart Foundation down here, and they've always been an operational support foundation. Uh, they don't do program funding traditionally. Uh, and I think that's one of the issues that most nonprofits have is they're always looking to cover their overhead. And we, you know, most nonprofits will add and as you, when you when you ran a nonprofit, you added overhead into your grant request to make sure you covered your your overhead. And there's a big debate about overhead expenses and things like that. And I think that one of the challenges, and even going back 30 years ago, I was on a on a focus group with the SF Foundation, the other executive directors, about what priorities uh, and how foundations funded nonprofits versus what we need. And I kind of made the statement, well, we know how to operate our own nonprofits. We have we sometimes get outside vision, but we know what we're trying to do. Let us do our work, you know, kind of thing. And that debate's been going on forever. I mean, that's and it yeah. probably will always go on forever on that. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think I, again, totally resonates. And the raw material of a not for profit is fundamentally its people, right? That, you know, that, you know, we're, you know, the, you know, there's curriculum, there's other pieces, but it's, it's all created by people. So we're not, we're not spitting out widgets of, of boxes or tools or whatever. It's people and people cost money. Right. right. Um, and, and therefore, you know, for us, it's why, leadership and leaders and investing in people is actually, you know, fundamentally the most critical, you know, piece of the puzzle. And so, you know, for us, we'll find the right people and we kind of use your line. We want to let them do their work. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have an opinion. And it also doesn't mean that it's not necessarily that we have vision and that those running the not-for-profit don't. I think it's just a different, we're at a different um, level right? We're at a different height, not a better height or a worse height. We're just at a different altitude. Well, that's what I you think. do as a consultant is you have that outsider view of an organization. You look at it from 10,000 feet rather than from inside the organization. You see things that the organization may not see about, about what they're doing. Correct. I think it also, one other thing I just want to say, Gary, and yeah. I think it speaks to, you know, the, 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 the point that you, that you, that you made is that 
There's also something about particularly the, the, the amount of work um, that we ask our people to do, particularly those that are running or at the higher levels of the organizations, um, sometimes we don't make it easy to give them the opportunity to dream and have vision because they're so busy running their day to day, right? So, you know, one of the things that we try to do is to look at the capacity of an organization and make sure that they have the right people and the right amount of people doing the work so that the leadership of the organization can actually vision for the future. But so often they're spent, you know, putting out the fires of today um, instead of thinking about tomorrow. And my philosophy, particularly for CEOs, is around we need to be spending giving giving our CEOs the opportunity to be spending 95% of the time on tomorrow um, and you know only spending time in today when they have to. And I think it doesn't work like that and it needs to get better. Well, I had a board president one time, uh, Rhoda Goldman of Blessed Memory, uh, who when she left the office of president of uh, the synagogue and, and gave out little awards, she gave me a water pistol. And she said, the reason I'm giving you a water <laughs> pistol is you put out all the fires. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I still have it. <laughs> yeah. You can't see this on the podcast, but you can see it now. I still have my uh -huh. water pistol. And I, <laughs> I, I, is it, with, with great pride, I have that. You know, um, And what you're talking about also is very similar to the venture philanthropy involvement. I just had uh, Robert Kaplan on my, my podcast, and he said the same thing, that they put people they want to make sure the right people are in the right places in the organization. And when I did a board retreat recently for a synagogue who seemed to be mired in the in the nitty gritty of the synagogue and not the big picture, and I said, you guys are running a half million dollar deficit. You got to figure out what's the five-year plan here? What's the big picture plan of attracting more people and re-envisioning your, your, your fundraising model and, and looking at what's attracting people to your programs, you know, yeah. as opposed to you know, d discussing masking or not masking for COVID for three and a half hours. Right. But, well, I mean, you're right. So, I, you know, another way that I framed all of this in my head, you know, over the last number of years is if some of your listeners have heard me speak before, they might have heard this. So I, I apologize for the repeat. But people generally think that the world is split into three distinct time frames, the past, the present and the future. Um, and I maintain that there are actually only two time frames. There's the future. Come back to that in a second. I actually maintain that the past and the present are actually the very same in the, in the sense that there's nothing that you can do about them. Right. You can learn from the past. You can look, but you can't change the past and you can actually can't change the present. Like you and I set up in our calendar that we would spend this 60 minutes together catching up and talking to one another. Now we could, you know, throw some water on social graces and one of us could just hang up and walk out right now. <laughs> but that's not the way the world works, right? So the only thing that we actually have any possible control over is actually the future. And it is the thing that we spent the least amount of time focusing on. Right. And the reason that we spend the reach amount of the least amount of time focusing on it is because it's unknown. It's it it you, it's it it feels a little uncomfortable. Imagine getting on a plane at LAX and not know where you're going. The pilot got on and said, well, I'm not quite sure where I'm going here. You'd run <laughs> off and get off the plane, right? So there's this sense of discomfort about the future that that keeps people from uh focusing on it. And uh 
it's uh, your 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 analysis and uh, or your uh, analogy from the synagogue is very true. That you know can't can't control today. You've got to get focused on tomorrow. I actually asked the question. You know, uh, when was the last time you looked at your vision, your mission statement, and three people said, "Do we have a mission statement?" <laughs> right. <laughs> not, so there's not, an example if you don't know where you're going, right? So let's go back a little bit. And uh, this is not your first career position. Uh, how did you get into the nonprofit world to begin with? So first of all, I'll just start by saying um, I wouldn't change anything about uh, my my career path in the sense that in the sense that I feel very blessed to have done the things that I've done. And so, you know, I don't think many people wake up in the morning and say they want you know get born and say they want to become a Jewish professional or they want to work in the Jewish world. Um, I found my way, um, as your listeners can probably tell, even after being here for 33 years, um, I am from I'm from Glasgow, Scotland, and I grew up in a, you know, what I, what would be termed um, by American terminology as kind of like a traditional Jewish home. And I went to a Jewish day school. Um, long story short, after I graduated college, um, I got offered. Um, I, I I'd worked at a Jewish summer camp the previous summer. And I got offered, a, uh, me and the camp director kind of hit it off. And after I graduated college, he said to me, I need a number two. This was a, the camp was in Wisconsin, office in Chicago. He said, you know, I need a number two. Why don't you come out and, you know, live in Chicago and do this? I said, why not? You know, that would be a wonderful, <laughs> I was 22. What, he, what happened six months later was what really just changed everything, which was um, the guy who hired me left the job. In January of uh, in January of 1991, and the uh, the camp was sponsored by Hadassah. It was Young Judea, and the camp was sponsored by Hadassah. And the woman who were on the board of directors offered me the job. I would never have hired myself. I was way too young to understand the awesomeness of the responsibility of being a summer camp director, and I was also way too young to be to say of course i can do i i can do that right <laughs> um but they actually saw something in me that i never saw in myself and i will forever be grateful um i did that for 5 years and uh then um went to new york to run the network of young judea camps around the country and then um my uh, wife and i started a family and did not want to raise a family in manhattan um and i was recruited um by a by a, a recruitment firm um, I was asked if I wanted to be the executive director of a, a very large reform congregation in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I remember my first conversation with the recruiter where I, where I said, you know, my wife and I are looking to leave uh, New York City, but let me just be very clear. Um, I don't want to move to Cincinnati and I never, ever will work in a synagogue. Um, three months later, being a man of my word, I was ensconced in a new position, and that's where our paths uh, began to cross, Gary, which I'm very grateful for. So very quickly, I did that for another five and a half years. You'll see this kind of five-year pattern for me, um, and then went to um, went into the business world for a number of years, and then moved to San Francisco to become the CEO of the JCC, and then from there, philanthropy with... Uh, with the Lisa and John Pritzker Family Fund, and now at the Jim Joseph Foundation. So the arc is summer camp, JCC, synagogue, business, philanthropy. Um, and I'll finish this by just saying, I do believe that in order to be to to work in philanthropy, um, 
you need to have experienced what it feels like to be on the other side of the table. Um, and in fact, we have a kind of a policy here at the foundation um, that I've instituted that we won't hire people who haven't been on the other side of the, of the, of the table. You need to know what it feels like to have the pressures of running a not-for-profit and to have sometimes, you know, real uh, tough decisions to be to make. I, there are no emergencies in philanthropy, and we have enormous responsibility. But if somebody doesn't get their check today, they'll get it tomorrow. Um, but when I ran the JCC, you know, that's when you have emergencies. You know, that an 88-year-old man die and die, you know have a heart attack and pass away in the building, and two hours later, you know, I'm going with the county coroner to tell his wife that he won't be coming home. That's an emergency. Right. And I think in order to feel and understand, in order to know the privilege of being on this side of the table, you have to have understood what it feels like to be on the other side of the table. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Lloyd Burkett Insurance Agency, founded in 1946, provides businesses and nonprofits with insurance services throughout California and the country. They provide business and commercial, personal insurance, workers' comp, and benefits. They specialize in churches and synagogues in the nonprofit world, and they handle businesses of all sizes. Thank you, Jeff Burkett, president of Lloyd Burkett Insurance Agency, for sponsoring our podcast, The Road to Philanthropy. www.burkettinsurance.com. That's B-E-R-K-E-T-T, insurance.com. Now, you obviously, your career has always been in the Jewish world, and, and Jim Joseph Foundation is one of the biggest foundations in the country. Do you do a lot of uh, interaction with non-Jewish foundations, and what do you learn from them that's different or or the same of, of what you're doing with Jewish uh, nonprofits? It's a great question. So yes, there is definitely a nice network of uh, those of us in the Jewish world that uh, run foundations, you know, and we collaborate together. And 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 that's definitely been a a strong a, a strong, you know, it's hard to say a strong plus of COVID because it's been such a tragedy for so many people. But it's definitely created a much more collaborative view. And in the non-Jewish world, I, I do have a number of colleagues in the secular world um, who run some of the larger, well-known foundations um, up and down California and across the country um, that are kind of household names. And it's interesting. Um, I, I think sometimes, um, and, and the answer is I learn from them all the time, and I can talk about that in a, in a minute. I think sometimes we do ourselves a little bit of an injustice in the Jewish world where we say, well, you know, what, 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 what's the secular world doing? What can we learn? And I have discovered in my conversations and relationships and friendships with my secular colleagues that while I learn an awful lot from them, they learn an awful lot from us um, about what we're doing. And I think, you know, there are a number of strong, good practices in the Jewish world in philanthropy, um, and there are some weak ones, too. Um, but I would say that the place where um, I've kind of gained an awful lot of insight and work from my secular colleagues is around some of the more non-traditional types of grant making that are out there, you know, with impact investing and PRIs and, uh, and MRIs, emission-related investments and, and program-related investments and different kind of financial um, modalities that one can put into place. Whereas the Jewish world has generally just been very much purely grant driven. And I think some of the work that we did 
um, with my other colleagues in putting together the Jewish Community Response and Impact Fund, which was this loan fund that was set up for Jewish organizations during COVID, um, was very much built on some of the work that has happened in the, uh, in the secular world through organizations like the Not-for-Profit Finance Fund and, and, other, and other places. So I think in, in, in these places, they are a little bit more ahead of the curve. But I think in our side of the table, certainly here at the foundation, you know, we know that some of the work that we do, particularly in research and evaluation, is highly regarded by our secular colleagues, um, and 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 they seek us out on that often. Right. Well, one of the things we talk about from my side of the table when we're looking for grants is to make sure we can articulate clearly what we think our outcomes are going to be, and how we're going to measure measure the success of the programming or of the funding uh, to tell, tell the funder, this is what really we accomplish. And that's a hard thing for most nonprofits to be able to do. One of my clients I did work for was purely evaluation uh, work. How do you evaluate a program? How do you justify the cost of the program based on how many people you're reaching versus the big organization, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. So we, I, I have a line that I've always used. Show me where an organization spends its money and I will show you its priorities. And, you know, like here at the foundation, you know, we have a you know dedicated team on research and evaluation that both, you know, you know, both internally and externally to help our grantees. You know, we have a set aside amount of money that we spend every year on research and evaluation. Um, and so. Uh, you know, if it's if it's a priority, you know, you have to demonstrate it, and that usually means people, and uh, you know, and and I think this foundation, and I give my predecessor Chip Edelsberg a tremendous amount of respect and and vision for 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 making that, you know, part of the DNA of the Jim Joseph Foundation. Right. We are known for our research and evaluation, and it requires ongoing time, commitment, and funding. Well, it's kind of interesting because. You were once a synagogue executive director, and Chip also was a synagogue executive director. Both in, 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 and both of us in a synagogue in Ohio. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, always a small world uh, kind of stories. One of the things I always say, you know, to to boards or staffs when I'm leading discussions about future is, how does this fit into your mission? Also, and you're right about priorities. That's what your funding is, uh, and. Uh, it's very challenging for a lot of organizations. We just had a situation at Safe Parking LA where someone came to us and wanted us to open parking lots for RVs that would be permanent RV parking. And it's like, well, that's not part of our mission. Our mission is to get transient parkers into permanent housing or transitional housing and the right counseling and the right job training to get them off, back on their feet again. But how does the RV fit into yeah. our mold? You know, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. But well, still, four people on the board wanted to do it because their heart told them, well, someone's got to do it. We might as well do it. <laughs> you right. know, okay, I was listening to another one of your some of your episodes recently, and something like this came up as well. And it made me think, you know, sometimes when a not-for-profit is successful, right, it, it, it's a bit of a backhanded compliment, right? So the, the not-for-profit has demonstrated success. So therefore, other people come to that not-for-profit and say, well, you did that really well. Can I? Can you do this as well, right? And that's where you get mission creep, right? That's right. where you get the drift, right? And it, it's, a, it's a backhanded compliment because 
you know, it's kind of like, what's the line? If you, you know, if you want to get something done, you better give it to a busy person, right? You right. know, right. so it's the same type of thing. I, I remember vividly your your comment made me think. I had, you know, after a couple of years as being at the JCC in San Francisco, and things were going, you know, really extraordinarily well, and the place was growing, and you know, everything was great. I had a donor, I, you know, I, I, you're kind of a well-known, really incredible individual in the community you know, come to me and basically saying, look, I get this idea for something and I think it's great and you should do it. And it's going to cost a million dollars, kind of like, here you are, you know? And I'm like, you know, you know, I came this close, you know, to saying yes. And I'm like, you know, this isn't, this isn't what we do, you know? Um, and it's, it, it's hard, especially, especially when there's money dangled around there. Yeah, right. That's when it becomes, you know, you've got to kind of stay true to your focus. Well, we had the situation down here with Temple Sinai, the conservative show in, in West L.A., who renamed their their academy, their day school with a 15 minute gift from a donor. And nine months later, <laughs> they made the decision to give the money back to the donor and change it back. And the donor's brother is also on a uh, big funder of Hillel 818, where I'm on the board. And it's like, what the heck happened there? You know, yeah. and we've all had those situations where donors, uh, you know, think they understand what you're what they're signing, but then they don't. Or the donor influence is a big issue uh, in a right. lot of places. Uh, right. And I, I noticed today and I was reading E-Jewish Philanthropy this morning. We lost uh, Lori Loke last weekend, who was one of the biggest uh, funders of uh, Israeli universities. Uh, around uh, when i was a technion he uh, he was a uh, eight-figure donor to us and he funded technion and haifa university and you name it he and he was involved in as well we hopefully will have young donors coming up that will be like him uh, and, and others like him uh, and you certainly have been part of families that have been you know big foundations and there's a split in the family and then there's two foundations or in the case of uh, the goldman foundation they liquidated the big foundation and Every Goldman child had their own foundation and what that means to the funding world and things like that. Yeah. Um, what what might be uh, two or three uh, critical issues that you'd like to address in the coming years uh, with foundation money? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, uh, the, there, there's a there's I kind of figured you would uh, you go down that road. At some point. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm sure now, you know, there's lots of people just turning up their volume. Right. You know, you know, I I, 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 I got taught in the detect, you know, it was like the movie, the detectives novel. You know, <laughs> so I looked it up. It was on page 24. I had to ask you the question. <laughs> there are there are a number of trends out there that we are that we see and notice that are you know, that are not new and that we were thinking about and, are, you know, that have gotten heightened in the, you know, in, you know, during COVID, right? So, you know, clearly there's something going on in the kind of rabbinic world with this, you know, with the, with the, with, the, you know, in the, in the amount of students that are, you know, that are attending rabbinical school. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's, you know, for us, that, that that raises questions about mainly about pipeline right now, you know, like, like, you know, it's like, what what what's happened? Um, and that's, that's not necessarily, you know, related to the schools, that's, it, it's partially related, I think, to what it means to be a rabbi and, 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 and whether or not that is now continued to be like an attractive venture, you know, for somebody. Um, and I think that's that's an area of interest. I think the foundation, um, you know, we we have a general hypothesis that 
that no other position in the North American Jewish community can have more impact than a really great rabbi can. And therefore, you know, as we're watching the trends that are happening nationwide, that that's certainly an area that we're, you know, that, that we're starting to think about. Another area that I, I'm going to use a term that is, is uh, you know, that's probably not quite the right one, but DIY Judaism, if you will. Um, and what I mean by that is, not you know just do whatever you want it has to be based and have you know and have content, but we are just continuing to see um, particularly younger generations you know change their modalities of their affiliations you know etc. Um, and therefore, what kind of tools do we need to give people to live you know to live Jewish lives? So I'll share with you a personal story you know from just two nights ago where you know for the first time since I've been going to synagogue as like a five or six year old boy, you know, um, my family and I um, did not go to Mila services at Yom Kippur, but instead with a bunch, with other friends gathered together for Nila at a friend's house outside and had, a, you know, very rich and deep, meaningful, spiritual, you know, 75 minute conversation, discussion, prayers, etc. you know, and then proceeded to break fast, right? And, you know, um, I would maintain that that was a deeply rich and uh, fulfilling experience for everybody that was there, but it was, it was a little DIY. So that's definitely something that is going to require significant attention. And then the third thing, you know, is we're starting to, you know, really think about and spending time and money um, on creating a systemized way to constantly be thinking about an R and D lab of Jewish life, right. um, and we, you know, we we we've got a we're, we're building a, a separate division here at the foundation, which is tethered to the foundation, but is a, for want of a better term, a lab, a skunk quirks that is um, that is engaged right now over 300 people in a multitude of experiments that are going on around Jewish life to actually uh, to actually think about what the future could look like we're not trying to land on the very next thing the big the next big thing of Jewish life we're actually trying to create a system by which experimentation is a constant a, a constant happening and the last thing I'll just say about this is on that one is Jewish life has been one big experiment since since Mount Sinai um, and, uh, and, you know, the greatest hack on Jewish life was when the temple was destroyed and the rabbis went to Yavna and uh, created, you know, rabbinic Judaism, right? Um, and so this notion that this isn't a thing that can be experimented and played with, you know, we fundamentally disagreed with, disagree with, all with based on Jewish education and Jewish literacy. Um, so these are the kind of like a few of the areas that we're excited by. We thank our sponsor, Hot Dog Business Growth. Hot Dog Business Growth has over 40 years of practical experience. We've developed best practices for the execution of ideas, professional growth, constructive communication, employee relations, sales strategies, including compensation, pricing, marketing, and much more, such as CEO and leadership counseling, both in the for-profit and non-profit sectors, customer service assessments and training, sales counseling for individuals, sales teams, sales management support, and pricing strategies. We focus on team synergy, 
Our leader, Joel Volk, has spent years building the type of team synergy that results in positive relationships and improved results. We have a team of 11 consultants working in the profit and nonprofit world. As Joel says, hot dog, it's a wonderful life. You can find us at hotdogbizgrowth.com. That's hotdogbizgrowth.com. Right. Well, one of the things that the two synagogues that are trying to merge down here are talking about is creating a new model of engagement and not the way it was. And I had done a lot of work with Synagogue 2000, 3000 project years ago. I'm still very tight with Ron Wolfson. And he talks about the fact that, you know, over most bemas, it says, Da, Lifne, Ata, Omed, know who you stand before you stand, as opposed to we've always done it that way. And that's one of the challenges is that there are many ways to express life and Jewish living from minions to Moisha houses to wilderness Torah yep. all, and everything is going on. And it's, you know, I, as my rabbi said the other night here, it's a matter of are people feeling engaged and connected or not? Right. And if they feel engaged and connected, they will take part and it will grow and be strong. If they right. don't feel engaged and connected, uh, that's what's going to happen. Right. And, and for the, and for that, they need to be they they need to be well, you know, you know, if you if you just, you know, let's just say that, uh, you know, 25 percent of Jews um, are affiliated and involved in Jewish life in some watch that some way. That means that 75 percent of of the people's voices aren't heard. Right? I was just going to say that, actually, because 30 years ago, 30 years ago, the 90s, maybe more than 30 years ago now. We had a synagogue initiative program in the Bay Area funded by Coret, a bunch of rabbis and executives. And I said, I stood up and said, well, if 80% of the people are not affiliated, then we're doing something wrong, you know, because we're not connecting with them. If you right. were selling a product, a phone, Apple, you know, and no one was buying your product, you would change your product. Right. You know, right. from that standpoint. Yeah. And, and and again, you know, and it's hard, right? Because we've built, we've built um, institutions, you know, I, I sometimes say that uh, the Jewish community of North America has an, an edifice complex. Right? <laughs> we love our we love our buildings, right? And we do. And I'm I'm not suggesting that they're not important, but the reality is, what actually goes on inside them is actually much more important, right? And what goes on inside them, and I'll tie it back to where we started, Gary. What goes on inside them is all related to the people that work there. So if you told me I can, I've got $15 million to spend, I can spend $14 million on a building or $1 million on what goes on inside it with the people, or I could spend $5 million on a building and invest the other 10 in getting the, I would do the latter 101 times out of a hundred. Right. right? right. Um, because, you know, and, you know, and look, you know, our, our, our friends at Chabad are, 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 are proof positive of that. Right. You know, that, 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 you know, that it's about people and it's about engagement, and, you know, and it's about whatever. And that there, there's significant opportunity, you know, in, in, in that regard. And I do believe that next generations are much less tied to their buildings. They're much more interested in experiences. Right. right? We know that. Right. You know, my, my nephews and nieces don't think twice about dropping a few hundred dollars to go and see a great concert, right? I'd be like, <gasps> you know, right? They, they, they think differently, um, you know, or my kids think differently than that. And so we need to adapt to that. Very, very true. 
Um, so outside of the business world that you're in, in the nonprofit sector, you live in a beautiful area in Northern California. What do you do for fun? I, I, somebody asked me recently, um, you know, am I the type of person that has uh, regrets in life? And I said, I don't. Um, but if you pushed me, I wish I'd found Northern California earlier in my life. You know, it's definitely a beautiful place to live. So, you know, we we find ourselves, you know, outdoors an awful lot and and doing an awful lot of the uh the 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 hiking and biking you know etc that is uh, that is so popular here I'm I'm a huge sports fan um, and for me that manifests itself in the in football and by football I mean the real football the not real the football American, yeah no I mean I, I enjoy the American kind as well but the real football so uh, you know there was a a very famous manager of Liverpool in the seventies a, a Scottish manager called Bill Shankly who was one once asked, is football a matter of life and death? And he there was like silence. And then he said, don't be so silly. It's much more important than that. <laughs> um, and I kind of have that philosophy as well. And so I, uh, you know, I, I enjoy, I, you know, enjoy doing that, you know, and, and, you know, most of all, I just, you know, enjoy being with my, uh, my family and, 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 and spending an awful lot of great time that, that, we're we're about eighteen months away from empty nesting, so we're holding on to uh, number three as as uh, as, as hard as we can. As hard as we can. Yeah. yeah. That, uh, so November twenty first. Uh, November twenty first has a, a big meaning to you this year, then, right? The uh, beginning of the world. Oh, the World Cup. Cup. Yes, right? of course. The world Cup. And I'm one of those strange Americans. I am. I am addicted. I've been addicted for years to the Premier League, and uh, my team is Arsenal. And I'm very happy this year because right now we're still at the top of the chart. You are uh, last, but I'm having a good time with it anyway. You got a big game on big game on Sunday morning. Uh, against, yeah, against yeah. Uh, again against uh, against Liverpool. By the way, I will say just to tie in the common thread that you that I have, particularly with people from Britain and talking about soccer and stuff. You know, it it it, it you know. We, we all kind of like that. We, we, we like it. There's a peoplehood amongst it, which is one of the things that drives our religion, right? There's a, you know, how many times have we all been on vacation somewhere, travel to some far from place in the world, and we get really excited when we meet somebody else who's Jewish, right? You know, it's the same thing when you meet somebody else from Scotland who loves soccer, you know, like, like we human beings are meant to be together. We're meant to have that commonality, which is why the last few years has been you know, just so horrific for, for you know, for, 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 for the, well, I think that the big word for the high holidays this year was hug or hugging because yes. people were back together and were able to, you know, feel each other and community is what life is about. And it's oh, family, yeah. it's friends and the community you, you build around you. Uh, and uh, I think that statistics have shown us that, you know, and obviously mental health issues are very big right now in a lot of different ways that, being part of a community, being part of something is is a very important factor in life. So very much so. Very well, thank much. you so much for being part of the show. Uh, pleasure. Good catching up. You and, too. Uh, Looking forward to connecting again soon. Very good. And for my listeners, it's jimjosephfoundation.org if Correct. you have an interest in looking at it. And uh, we will all see you, see you next time on The Road to Philanthropy. Thanks for having me, Gary. Thank you for listening. We want to stay connected with you. Be sure to stay connected with our community by giving a like to our Facebook page and following our Instagram at paintedrock underscore advisors. Our podcast is available on all of your favorite platforms. We'll see you at our next release.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.